but I want to walk you through the Sermon on the Mount. We're actually not starting in Matthew chapter 5, which is when the sermon kind of begins. We're going to start at the end of Matthew chapter 4 and walk through the first few chapters of Matthew together. And here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to read you the first the verses for today, uh, and I'm going to then kind of walk through it as I would on any given Sunday. And I thank you guys so much for kind of sticking it out with us as we do this. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And he, that would be Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. It's our passage. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thanks for sending Jesus into the world. Thank you for the instruction that he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you that we can learn from him. Now we ask God, by your grace, for your glory, uh, that you would use this teaching that we know or have are so familiar with, would you use it to change our hearts and our minds to reflect your Son more fully? So show us Jesus. That's what we need. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I had a, uh, a conversation with one of my kids recently, uh, and it was brief. And he said, uh, the question was, if you could go back in time and visit any person, who would you visit? Right? That's a pretty common question that... Uh, kids get. So who could you visit? I was pretty proud, a proud father, because uh, one of my children said, I would go back to 1983 to watch Magic and Bird. Well, if you don't know who he's referring to, he's referring to the Lakers-Celtics rivalry. He wanted to watch all world talents battling it out, entering their prime. And I was like, that's the right answer. Of course, there's no right answer. But uh, he responded with, I would have gone back and seen Jesus, right, because he's a preacher's kid. But he would probably have been busy. Jesus is too busy now. So what do I say as a parent when I hear that? But I say, son, Jesus is never too busy for you. Jesus is never too busy to you. You don't have to be a youth, though, a child or a middle schooler or whatever. You don't have to be uh, young in age, to wonder about Jesus and whether or not Jesus has time for you. We question whether or not Jesus might have time for us. We go, oh, my struggles are so small. My issues are so insignificant. I'm really, I don't know if I need to have Jesus enter into this. I don't know if I need to give them to Jesus. I don't know if I need to approach Jesus with my concerns. But nothing's too insignificant for God. You're not too small. You're created in His image. So yet we still feel as if we are uh, not what God would want. But the Son of God coming into the world shows us that we are completely valuable. Now, as His ministry began, Jesus became popular quickly. There's not a lot about Him as a youth. But once the ministry began, he got popular quickly, and he was clear on his message. Message, message, message. What am I doing? I'm not stopping. That's what I'm doing. 
He was clear on his message, and he shared from the scriptures about what he was to do. And so how did Jesus grow in popularity so quickly? What did he do? What were the circumstances leading up to that famous sermon that we will be spending the bulk of the rest of this year in and into next year? Um, That's what we're going to look at today. The growth of Jesus as he begins his ministry, which then sets up our sermon series, which we're calling The Good Life. Now we've titled it The Good Life. Uh, I thought I came up with that myself. As I had been reading like R.T. Francis commentary, uh, or I saw some footnotes in another work that I was using, this is apparently a title toward at least the Beatitudes that many people have used. So I don't know who incepted whom there. I think I came up with it myself, but clearly I don't lay claim to this series title as my own. But we're calling it The Good Life because Jesus is showing us in this sermon a different way. He's showing us what an obedient, new covenant life oriented in him, empowered by the Spirit. He's showing us what that might look like. And before we even get into the bulk of the sermon, we want to get a sense of the setting. So this morning we're going to go through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 of Matthew. I'm not going to read chapters 1, 2, and 3, and 4, but I'm just going to talk to you about what Matthew's doing, which then helps us understand what's going on in the sermon. So to begin, in summaries uh, of Matthew, many summaries if you read would say something like this. Matthew displays Jesus as Israel's Messiah. If you look at the amount of Old Testament references that Matthew uses as he is beginning to instruct about Jesus in his gospel, you'll find that Matthew is using lots and lots of references about Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, showing how Jesus fulfills specific prophecies. Matthew writes in his gospel with a strong showing. This is what he wanted you to see, and we see that in the first four chapters. So just kind of come with me, gather around uh, your TVs or your phones or your computers if you're online. Gather around with me as we go through these first four chapters I'm just going to give you some specific statements about Jesus. They're not coming up below me on the screen. I'm sorry about that. Uh, This is rather ragtag that we're doing. Uh, But I want you to see what Jesus is doing. So we just start with Jesus' birth, Matthew chapter 1. And Jesus' birth reveals his lineage. Why is his lineage, where he came from, his progeny, not his progeny, uh, so important? Well, Matthew starts his book with a genealogy. This person had this person, who had this person, who had this person, who had this person. If you've ever listened to uh, Matthew's Begats by Andrew Peterson during Behold the Lamb, you know, uh, Abraham had Isaac. It just goes on and on and on. You get to see this genealogy that goes back to Abraham and Abraham to David, David to the exile. And it's showing that he is royal through David. Showing him that he goes all the way back to Abraham. Now, remember the promise of Genesis chapter 12 that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. When we did Galatians earlier this year, we talked specifically in Galatians chapter 3 about how Jesus is fulfilling this promise, this this prophecy to uh, bless all the nations of the world. So Genesis 12 has got to be important for the believer to understand. So the end of chapter 1 contains the birth of Jesus. 
and you see scripture being fulfilled there. In fact, if you just take your finger and you and you kind of move through Matthew, you're going to start seeing numerous Old Testament quotations. If you're unfamiliar uh, with how a Bible is typeset, how it's kind of set up, is that very often they're going to put the uh, off to the side or different than kind of the normal paragraph, they're going to put an Old Testament quotation or they're going to put poetry. So it's set up differently. So if you just kind of have your Bible and you go through it, you'll see unique spots of poetry or unique spots of Old Testament citation. And you'll find that as you go through Matthew, you will find these marks. So Matthew highlights Jesus and his lineage. And Matthew highlights not just that, but the virgin birth, as we see Jesus is born, as spoken in Isaiah. So we're seeing his lineage come out as royal, and the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. We see his early life, the early life of Jesus, fulfilling prophecy. What do I mean by that? Fulfilling prophecy. Well, there were things that were spoken of, that then Matthew goes back and goes, look, when this happens, you can see it is now fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So Matthew 2 shows a visit from the wise men, the three wise men, the Magi. And Herod was curious about who this Jesus was. He was curious about who this king was going to be. And he asked these uh, wise men, to, hey, please let me know. Just let me know who we're talking about here. I, I like to worship him too. And he didn't really want to worship them, did he? He was not interested in that. He wants to destroy Jesus. And we see in this part of the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 2, Herod's evil plan and how it's going to work himself out. Now, I know uh, with that in mind, what we are able to see or what we're kind of working on in Herod's plan is that prophecies are being fulfilled, that Jesus goes to Egypt with his family because they're warned, don't go. You know, Herod's going to kill you. So they're warned, and then there's this out of Egypt, I called my son. And so we see that prophecy. When Herod actually kills children, uh, we have another prophecy that is actually fulfilled. Not that the prophecy is speaking of it as good, but speaking of it as this will happen. And Matthew sees it and goes, look, it's happening even now. It's happening here. So we see Jesus' birth as fulfilling, his, or showing his lineage and his early life, even his early life as fulfilling prophecy. Uh, he has a forerunner, doesn't he? Somebody who comes before him. Uh, the forerunner's name is JTB, right? John the Baptist. So John the Baptist comes before him. John has disciples. These disciples follow John. And what you see there is that Jesus and John meet up. They're relatives. And John the Baptist, now we've, we've gone, right? We've gone far into the future. There's so much about Jesus' young life we don't even we don't know about. But John the Baptist sees Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Uh, we see John is fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah. In the wilderness make ways for the Lord. So he's preparing the way for Jesus. He's declaring. He's preparing hearts. People are coming out. They're questioning who he is, John. And he wants people to receive the Messiah but many, many don't listen. But Jesus is baptized by John, isn't he? He says this is to fulfill all righteousness. So as chapter 3 ends of Matthew, John baptizes Jesus. And the Spirit of God comes down, and a voice from the Father speaks of the Son and declares who he is. 
And you see in that God's pleasure, that even Jesus' baptism declares, demonstrates God's pleasure in ways that nothing else has happened before. Why? Father, Son, Spirit, all in the same place in this declaration, in the same moment, this declaration of God the Father being pleased with God the Son. But then quickly, Jesus moves to a time of temptation. And when I preached the temptations maybe a year ago, I didn't do a good job of that. Um, I, didn't, I didn't do as good a job as you guys deserve in hearing uh, what that was. So when we get another run at the temptations, I, I'm ready to, uh, to do a better, better sermon for you guys. Because I, I think I majored on some minors there. Um, but I get to his temptation, and you begin to see something that Jesus is superior to Adam. He's superior in his temptation, right? You have, you have Jesus in the wilderness with nothing around, uh, no, no way to sustain him. You have Adam and Eve in the garden, and they had everything. Satan comes to Adam and Eve, and they are tempted, and they uh, turn. Satan comes to Jesus. Jesus has nothing, and all he leans on are the Scriptures. Interesting, too, is that he leans into Deuteronomy. But we see through Jesus' temptation that he's superior. He's doing something new. Whereas formerly, when temptation came, man fell. Now Jesus is here and temptation has come and Jesus resists. He stands firm on the scriptures, on the word. He is different. And what you're going to see as we go throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and if you would just be reading the Gospel of Matthew, you will find time and time again, Jesus as different, different than what we are, how we live, how we operate, what we care about, what we're interested in, what we think is important. And then his preaching. Jesus starts preaching, doesn't he? After his temptation, he begins his public ministry. And he's continuing to fulfill what the prophets have spoken. And he's preaching about the kingdom. And uh, he's preaching about this new way that has come near. And in his preaching, he is showing that God is near. He reveals it. He is the light of God. He shows us God. He is God. And he wants those who come near to him to turn and to realize his rule. Matthew's arguing right now specifically in regard to uh, the nation of Israel. He wants the nation to turn and to believe. So that's all going on. His birth reveals his lineage. His early life fulfills prophecy. His forerunner declares the way. His baptism shows us God's pleasure. His temptation demonstrates his superiority. And his preaching shows us his mission. All of that happens in the first four chapters of Matthew. And we're left, and we see God, and he is different. I mean, I, I mean he, is, he is not like anyone else. He is, no one has done this. No one has served like this. And this is our God. This is the one we get to worship. This is not just the one we get to worship. This is the one we get to know. He gets to know us. I mean, gets to, but like in Galatians, now that you are known by God. You're known by God. So we know him and he knows us. We are united through to the Father, through the work 
of Jesus. And so now we look right at the end, Matthew 4, 23, 24, and 25. And we see this, that Jesus' fame grows as he declares God's rule in his teaching and he demonstrates God's rule in his healing. So he's declaring on one side, he is demonstrating on the other, and both of these things work together, declaration and demonstration. So let me just read those three verses, 23, 24, and 25, one more time. And he went throughout all Galilee. So he's currently in the north of Israel. Teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming, as a declaration, the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pain. Those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. He healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, ten cities, that area, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So all of these areas are following now. They're hearing about Jesus. They want to know more about him. So right before we hear the Sermon on the Mount, which is given largely to his disciples and then the crowds who were listening, right before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we get to see the popularity of Jesus just skyrocket. And we're seeing his fame grow. He's declaring God's rule and he's demonstrating it at the same time. His teaching is his declaration his healing is his demonstration, verifying. And these are the works of the Messiah from Isaiah. Like, I'm going I'm to preach peace, and people are going to be, uh, be uh, healed, and the poor will find, right? Like all these things that uh, the Old Testament speaks of the Messiah doing, Jesus is doing, and he's doing it in his preaching, and he's showing it in how he lives. The kingdom of God has come near because Jesus is near, right? It's not just like this... this orb that just kind of marches along and now you get you know sucked into it jesus is showing us because jesus is this revelation he's the one that we are able to see and know he is god and if you know jesus then you know god so he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom which is an interesting word the gospel of the good news of the kingdom what's the good news of the kingdom well Think of it like this. Uh, what is a kingdom? Kingdom is a place that has a ruler and it has a way. The ruler of the kingdom of God is God himself. And the good news is that God has come near to his people. That Jesus, the king, has arrived. The Messiah is there and he is to be worshipped, he is to be honored, he is to be followed, he is to be everything. I mean, everything. And he deserves all things. And he's preaching because he's there. Now, when you realize the king has come, that the, that the ruler, the Messiah, has come near now, and you get to hear the declaration, we should... We should 
turn and surrender. And that's what Matthew wants the nation to do, is to go recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So he's declaring that God is here. There's a rule and a way. He's teaching it. John the Baptist has pointed to him and said, This is the guy. This is the one. And then it would only make sense that if you're saying something to be true, you would show how it is true. I was talking to one of my kids yesterday. I think it was yesterday. Recently. I'll say recently. It's kind of the pastor hedge. I said, hey, man, you know I love you? He said, yeah, I do. I said, how do you know I love you? And I coach him in this, so he's probably just spitting out the right answer. He gave me three, three things. But I was coaching him. I've coached him in this before to talk about God. He goes, well, first, you, you didn't say it like this. He goes, you tell me, and you you show me, and also I'm not dumb. That was his third one. That one he tagged on, I think. He didn't need to say that one. But right, that, that when you declare something as true, you also are probably going to evidence it as true. So if I say, hey, I love you, I love you, but I've never made any any demonstration of that love to you, then all that sounds like they're words, Right. So if somebody had come into the world and they have said, hey, kingdom of God's here, turn, turn, repent, turn, repent. But there was no tangible difference in who this person was or how they lived or what they expected or anything like that. If that never happens, then it just moves along. It's done. It's over. That person leaves and no one else is interested and that's it. But with Jesus, he doesn't just say something. Jesus doesn't just go, oh, here's how it is, and the end. Jesus is there, and he's now healing. So he's saying, I have good news. But I don't just have good news. I'm going to show you that the news I have is real. I'm going to show you that in, in my world, people don't ache like they used to ache. That they can find healing, that they can find hope, that I'm here. Jesus doesn't just speak empty words. Jesus does not waste one word. And he doesn't leave you wondering. He taught of the good news and he showed the good news. He healed. And as people could see that he could heal, they recognized him as different. And that's actually a part of kingdom work, the declaration and the demonstration. And I know we might go, oh, no, 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 no. Like We don't want to get into conversations about... Uh, the ways in which we demonstrate the Lord. But I, this is all I mean. That if you love someone, you show it. If you believe Jesus is saved, you live as that is the case. And so I'm not telling you what things to get involved in or what ways to demonstrate it, but through a constant submission and obedience to the Lord and you know the word of the Lord, we as believers should live in a way that is different. We're actually going to see that after the Beatitudes. We talk about salt and light. But the salt and light at the end there, uh, it's not just, you know, being a salty Christian, like, like meaning like a punk. It means, I think, what the Beatitudes are. So Jesus is showing us <clears throat> that he's the Messiah. <clears throat> he speaks of God's rule and he teaches about a way that God has ruled. And then he sees, we see bodies made whole on this side of eternity. Now they will die and they will be resurrected as totally and fully healed. But he's showing these marks of the kingdom. That it was real. The Messiah has come. 
And so I want to fast forward into today for a moment, and maybe this is you. Um, <clears throat> but Jesus is risen. He is risen. He isn't ministering on earth in the same way that he was then. He's not walking around, but his church is here. His body is here. And the redemptive plan is now by us is seen more fully than Isaiah even saw it. And so for anyone listening today who is weary and who is hurting, who is tired, who is wandering, who is oppressed, Jesus is the Savior that you can approach. People were bringing others to him. They were bringing their hurt and their aching people, their broken bodies. They were bringing them to Jesus because they knew he was different. Brother, sister, you can do that. And your neighbors and your friends and your family who don't know the Lord, you can turn and point to him and say he cares. And you can bring yourself broken and weary and wounded. You can bring yourself to Jesus because he is the Messiah. You can turn toward him and you can limp over and you can say, you're the Lord. I believe in you and I trust you. And as Jesus continued his work, more and more people wanted to come and find this healing. And Jesus was gracious, wasn't he? And he continued to heal. And listen, we haven't even gotten to chapter 5. We haven't even gotten to the Sermon on the Mount yet. We've flown through four chapters of Matthew to see where we're headed. Where Jesus teaches, 5, 6, 7, Jesus teaches his followers about what true life with God looks like. What will we find as we get into chapters 5? And actually, for the rest of the year, we're just in chapter 5. What will we see as God is showing us how one who has the law on their heart will live? Well, here are a few things that you will find. We'll hear about what true life in him looks like. And how suffering is even seen as something that represents blessedness. And I don't mean blessedness as bestowing gifts on somebody. I mean it as people who are in a state of happiness because they are sure of who they are in the Lord. We'll see then how that is salt and light. That perspective brings salt and light. We'll see how Jesus compares what the law said and what the law required, right? So, so there's this thing of the, the, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Jesus is going to show us what the law written on hearts should have, would have been. It's him. We can't do it. He teaches us in the sermon on how to pray. He teaches us on how to be private and how we give and in our fasting, not to have outward demonstrations of our righteousness. We're taught not to worry and why we shouldn't be filled up with worry. And again, we call this series The Good Life, not because it's an attainable good life, but because it's the true good that God wants for us when we have life in Him. God knows what is good for us. He knows what's good for me. He knows what's good for you. He knows what's good for us as Genesis Community Church. Jesus is teaching his followers what life in him should be. And so I want to end with this idea. That the good life only comes through Jesus' good work for us. 
The good life only comes through Jesus' good work for us. Matthew has shown Jesus as the Messiah. And he ends in the same place. Ends this book with Jesus declaring to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, to declare that they are, he is the only way to enter in to what he wants for us. We'll see a totally different way of living as we go through it. But the only people who would even be able to live in this way are those who are citizens of the kingdom. And citizenship in this kingdom only comes through the total denial of self and the acceptance of Jesus as your Savior. And so the first thing I'll say to you is that have you made that decision? Have you trusted yourself to Jesus? Have you recognized that He came, He lived, He died, and He rose for your sins? You are unable to live the life God would have for you to live because you are shackled and you are bound by your sins. And as you hear him teach time and time again in the sermon, you will find yourself going, I can't do that. Well, true, only Jesus could. We go to him, but the person who is empowered by the Spirit of Christ is able to enter into that, to strive for that. And we can't enter into it first without submitting to what he's done for us, that he took our punishment, he gave his life, and through him we can have a truly good life. And so what we've seen so far already is this, that Jesus has not come only near to us, but he is totally accessible. We can come to him, and he can cleanse us of the sickness of sin. He can heal us, give us hope. He's not too busy for you. He's the Lord, and his salvation is available. So the good life, the God-pleasing life, is available because the one who has pleased God, the Father, that'd be Jesus the Son, has made the way. So let's trust him and live that life as we continue for the coming months, we'll be shown a better way, time and time again. And the only thing better than that way is the Savior who makes the way possible.